This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm your host, Norman Lau, and thank you once again for joining us in the conference room aboard the NXL1. Now, anyone who listens to this show or reads my posts on the Babel Conference on Facebook knows I love discussing Enterprise. I truly, truly, truly love it. I deeply enjoy promoting all the fantastic positive aspects of the show. It would be hilarious if you actually hated Enterprise Norm and you were actually hosting this show. This is how I this is how I practice acting, you know, for all those different uh, jobs I'm going to get later <laughs> on that I'm not going to get later on because I'm not an actor. But I do a pretty good job being enthusiastic, don't I? You would be I you would either be the greatest actor or you'd be the greatest psychopath. <laughs> if like I actually hate Enterprise, but I'm actually going to do an entire <laughs> podcast about it with your level of enthusiasm i would be actually a little scared it, 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 tommy would be the most impressive because he's invested so much of his own personal life and time and money into horizon that if he actually hated enterprise you would have the oscar for sure you know well you know. uh secrets out i'm like the joaquin phoenix of star trek fan films you are the master it's just been one elaborate performance piece <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like when he did that thing with Casey Affleck or whatever it was, where he started getting all weird and turned out it was for a movie. Oh yeah, yeah, and he like wore that. You know, he stopped showering for a while. Yeah, or... like he really went crazy, and like everybody thought he had issues. Uh, and it turned out he was just like doing this uh, performance art kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. This is so, a great um, way to start off Warp Five, by the way. <laughs> no, this is a perfect way to start off Warp Five because. We always talk about kind of like the positive aspects of Enterprise, and and why not? Because we're positive people. We love the show. We love promoting the show. But there is the other side. The other side of the episode. And just to put things into perspective, there's, there is kind of like the, um, the side that the fans weren't really all that keen on. Uh, there, were, there were problems with the show here and there. Uh, aspects of the show sometimes didn't resonate with the fans. Um Entire episodes, entire series, seasons didn't you know resonate with the fans. Uh, and there's just some issues along the way here and there across the four seasons, um, ranging from writing to acting to production to interference from the network and so on and so forth with the powers that be and what have you. But in order to be a proper podcast, you know, you have to focus on the positive and the negative. And 
to try and promote and foster what I like doing, you know, either through the podcast or on the Babel conference. I always mention this. I like fostering the conversation, trying to spur on discussion, you know, insights, constructive criticism and so forth. And, and in looking at what I wanted to do for this episode, I chose something that I found across a lot of research in the quote unquote, what the fans believed were the worst episodes of Enterprise. And across five different lists, I found one episode that crossed all five different, and it wasn't, it wasn't These Are the Voyages. It was actually Terra Nova. And uh, we're going to get into Terra Nova because, again, there's the good side of talking about Enterprise and the bad side about some of the things that happened in this episode. So, I have, of course, back with me again here in the conference room, I have our content coordinator, Will Wynn, who is hopefully no longer suffering from the frozen rain on the overside. Will, how you doing? It's good. I am not f- suffering from the frozen rain. I'm just suffering from the brutal, <laughs> cold wind. It's really, it's, it was really windy and the wind chill was brutal today, but it's getting there. Spring is around the corner, so there is hope. There is hope. I'm glad to have you back with us. And when he's not busy making homemade digger armor and hanging out in the underside. Tommy Kraft is back with us again on the other mic. Tommy, how you doing? Well, I'm lovely, and as much as I love it on the underside, it is nice to see the overside <laughs> for a change. <laughs> well, it's nice that the overside is getting a little bit more light, so yeah. you know, hopefully uh, spring's right around the corner, everyone's going to feel a little bit better, and uh, let's get into the show. So, Terra Nova. Good intentions or serious misfire here? So, Again, as I mentioned earlier in the preamble, doing some research, I came across this one episode that, frankly, for me, is a little bit of a surprise that it hit five completely different worst of lists because, I don't know, I don't, I don't really rank things a lot of best of, worst of, or, or what I quote unquote hate. Hate's a very strong word and it's, it puts things into such a negative connotation so quickly and easily when it comes to fostering discussion. So... I'd like to start off this show talking about what I really liked about Terra Nova, hopefully what Will and Tommy like about Terra Nova, and start off more on a, on a positive note. So when you guys were doing your rewatch of Terra Nova and knowing what you know about the discussion for this episode, did you put those two together? Did, did the Terra Nova real episode really kind of hit these low points for you to make it on these five lists or or was it really a good show that just had some serious flaws well uh anybody who's listened to the show a couple times knows that i probably don't usually hate much of anything i you know i love nemesis and i love jj and i well i wouldn't say i love this episode uh it i don't think it's as bad as people say, I think there's a lot of respectable elements to it and it had a lot of potential. And unfortunately it just didn't quite hit that potential where it could have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This episode, I think when I was doing my rewatch of it, you know, I think the thing that got to me was I kind of forgot about this episode. It's, it's, it's forgettable in a lot of parts because it's not hitting where it should be hitting. Although the premise when it starts off is actually for me, very engaging. 
So when I was doing the research for this episode, I think I was surprised too, Norm, just saying, uh, seeing the type of uh, fan reaction that this was, you know, one of the consensus choices for worst episodes. I think for me, it was more forgettable than worse. I didn't have that type of visceral reaction towards it that I would see from other episodes that I would suspect that you would have that reaction to. So I think this episode, it does have serious issues with it, and I think we'll get into that. I don't want to jump the gun per se, but it's one of those things where I'm, I'm a little perplexed about how, how much, how vocal, I guess, the reaction to it was. For me, it was mostly forgettable, and I think, I think for me that's the thing that kind of stuck with me. Let me ask you guys this. We are dealing with the fifth episode of season one, and the series started off pretty well. I mean, you had that really nice two-parter with Broken Bow. You're going out into deep space. You had that little, you know, that that quiet kind of like introspective episode about Hoshi with um, Fight or Flight. Then you had Strange New World, which actually was really nice because you got to deal with kind of like the, the crew going down on an away mission. So you're dealing with a lot of the standard kind of tropes of what fans recognize about Star Trek, you know. And now you have an episode where, and personally for me, it's something that I always love when Star Trek does this really well. You have the episode that deals with lost colonies. And in the original series, you had Miri. And even for for lack of uh, another episode, you had a piece of the action where when they went down to Sigma Osha, they were trying to deal with the lost contact of, of the colony that the Horizon um, established with, uh, you know, with the gangsters and leaving behind the book. So, you, you know, you have that. That's part of like the Star Trek tradition, trying to find where the colonies of Earth kind of went to, you know, uh, being fostered along by um, the uh, space, the space authority, the uh, the ECA there, the uh, the Earth cargo service and. For all of the listeners out there who I try and and uh, get uh, interested into watching more Enterprise, this episode, it starts with a great idea and kind of loses its way a little bit. And why do you think that is, guys? Where, where along the lines of this does it start to be more Star Trek and then kind of start to go off the rails? That was a long question. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, I think this is very much a TOS type episode. Uh, it has those that type of feel. Even the ending has that type of feel. Is it? I think what you would call a bottle episode where it's just self-contained. This is you know it, there's a there's a resolution at the end and it's not really referenced later on. And I think that kind of contributes to some sometimes you know for me certainly forgetting about this episode in a lot of ways. For me, where it falls off the rails is how they portray this regressed civilization, this regressed society. And I like the fact that, I'll start off with the good, I like the fact that they rediscover, or they attempt to rediscover this lost colony, this colony that was one of the first uh, deep space colonies before the Warp 5 engine, that it was really an investment. This was an investment of your future, your time. There was no going back. That you go out to this planet, you are staying there, you are going to make it, you know, this is your new home. Right, they said nine years there, nine, nine years, years back. back. Right. So. so there was a deep level of commitment. This was an investment of the rest of their lives. And I think that was really interesting. I think 
where they fall, where they begin to fall apart is how they address the issue of how these, uh, how the civilization is now portrayed. So they say there were children, right? So all the adults died due to the radiation. The children had to go and under underground and essentially learn for themselves how to fend for themselves, how to survive. I think for me, because they're trying to extrapolate what humanity, uh, if it regressed at a, at a very early age, I think they're falling back on a lot of tropes, which are problematic. The tropes of, of, you know, the exotic savage, you know, the fact that just because they're underground, why do they have mud all over their faces? Why must they have tribal paintings? Why must they have all these things that they're assuming that this is what a regressed quote unquote society would look like. But for me, it brings up a lot of problematic tropes of, you know, this is what, Native American culture was these savages that are uncivilized that when, you know, white, you know, colonialism or white colonists came that this is we had to to civilize them and that they had no other type of agency, that they were helpless, that they were just clearly at the mercy of their environment, that they had no um, other redeeming qualities other just being this this exotic, unknowable savage. Right. And I think. I think that's the tra- the trap the writers fell into when they when they thought of like oh let's think of a regressed society and how we would do that, and for me it was very clashing in terms of seeing them have machine guns or have firearms and have the you know the know how to survive but at the same time you know dis- exhibiting these these problematic tropes of of what we think of what of what we think a, a savage is a noble savage of what you know Aboriginal. Um, civilizations are and i think because it's they're trying to extrapolate off of humanity it's different than what was was done in tng's darmok which was another civilization completely it was another alien species completely there wasn't this type of historical context which the way they presented it could be problematic you know i never thought of it in terms of uh, the parallel to the Native American. And that's an interesting point, but I think part of the reason why they had this, why they portrayed the society this way is because they regressed from the point of children. So your starting, your starting point is, uh, is a group of people that are not fully developed and don't have an understanding really of technology of even basic technology like electricity. They have guns because the guns were there and they're pretty easy to figure out, guns are. But other than that, I think they don't really know anything about the environment. And so I think some of the savagery makes sense, but they don't really act like savages. I mean, they still very much care about their own. Um, you know, they're very much interested in, in curing the cancers, for instance. And but they're afraid to also, which is something which is what you would expect to see. So I think actually the portrayal of the quote unquote savage, I don't think they're necessarily savages, uh, but I think that portrayal actually wasn't too bad. I think the problem was they just tended to uh, be very cliche about it, which I guess we might be sort of saying the same thing, but. You know, it's it's things like uh, that shale. Well, obviously, shale is a type of mud rock, essentially. You know, it's just very... 
I, I don't know. It feels very on the nose that uh, that they would use the word shale for lies and, and other things like that. And uh, I think that's the biggest problem with this episode. It just falls into the territory of of on the nose and cliches. You know, the um, the episode was written by or co-written by Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, and it was directed by LeVar Burton. So you you have this core competency of talent. Obviously, everyone knows Berman and Braga's long history with Star Trek, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. So you have these two pillars of the Star Trek TV producing writing community that you would think would be able to sidestep these kind of landmines when it comes to writing a story like this and and self-editing and not feeling like you said, Tommy, so on the nose or so cliche. So I'm just wondering if the broad strokes that we like about this episode could have been tuned in such a way where if you committed to something, if you committed to the costuming and you understood why there was mud on their face, if you committed to the digger armor, if you committed to the, the primal nature that these children regressed to, in 70 so odd years, then I think it would have been a little bit more believable and less tropish as uh, plot devices. I mean, even if they went back to cave paintings or a combination of maybe communicating with sign language plus pictures plus song, there was a really nice part in that episode where it was almost kind of like their own witching hour where they busted out the shells and started playing music. That was thrown in there, but it could have been played to so much more significance, i.e. it was communal time. You got to see the entire tribe uh, in one setting and expose themselves to to Archer and, you know, to uh, his landing party. So I think one of the things that was a sticking point for me in terms of the quote unquote episode coming off the rails was they wanted to tell this really interesting story about the regression of these children, but they didn't quite go all the way with it. And I think that's where Darmok did, Will, because you brought up Darmok. And when I first watched that, it frustrated me. Darmok, when I first watched that, it frustrated me to no end because that's the feeling it wanted to evoke from the audience. And the resolution of bringing the, or bringing down the barrier of communication is exactly what the payoff was supposed to be. And you, as the audience, felt resolved. You felt invested. And you felt like, oh, I understand where this is going. And that's where I think if they really wanted to, they could have pushed the boundaries of communication a little bit further and made you feel like that frustration level between Archer and between them was real. Yeah. What do you guys I, think, I think about that's that? Exactly, I think that's exactly the point. I think Darmok, you know, they literally had to come up with a new syntax to understand them. Whereas here with the Novans, it was literally like almost, can we just think of an alternate way of saying this, but almost in, in a very tropish, like what would, you know, an unlearned person say what the above ground would be, right? The oversight, underside, the poison, right? It's, and I understand what they're trying to do with, you know, these are children that didn't have the benefit of formal education and, and all of that. I get that. But 
it's one of those things where you're right, Norm. It's it's kind of it's in between. It's they can't commit fully to the idea, so they're just like, well, let's just think of something that sounds different enough so it sounds alien, but not too different that the audience will clearly not understand or Archer and the crew will clearly not understand. And I think that one of the biggest, and you mentioned in your notes, why wasn't Hoshi down there, right? The, the, the first contact specialist, the language specialist, she should have been all over this, right? And yet it was clearly much more of an action-driven episode in a lot of ways from the get-go in terms of, you know, Malcolm being captured and, you know, the, the firefight in the, in the cave. And you really didn't have what should have been a uh, linguistic disconnect and that the issue was, you know, two cultures trying to understand each other in the same way that was illustrated in other episodes, that this really should have been about communication, understanding. And the way this episode was structured, it was, it was really just to save them from just this ecological disaster. And it didn't have that really, that really tried and true Trek motif of, cultures that are you know different from each other trying to understand each other you didn't really have that i just want to say like as a writer sometimes you have happy happy accidents and then sometimes you just have accidents and sometimes things look really good on paper in an outline but then you actually write the script and it just for whatever reason it doesn't pan out and i think honestly the tng episode darmok is that in a lot of ways because on paper as an outline I don't think Darmok would sound it would be very easy to make that into a very cheesy episode you know we're talking about this race of people that communicates essentially in metaphors and you know there and the dialogue is things like when the walls fell Darmok at Tanagra and that could very easily go the other way especially even if you just had the wrong actor and um, I think, and not to get on a tangent, but it's the same with uh, These Were the Voyages, the Enterprise finale. Um, it's a good concept. And we, we've talked about this off the air before and, and something I'd like to talk about more. But there are so many things that you could do with the concept of that Enterprise finale to make it a really great episode. But when they actually wrote it and it aired, it just kind of fell flat. And as a writer myself, it's happened to me before. I've had a concept, I've written it, and I've even shot it, and it just didn't work out how it looked in my head. And uh, I think that's honestly what happens sometimes, especially in TV when you're on a time constraint. You're on a really tight time constraint. You have to get the episode done. You have to get it in the can and ready to air. Um and you're doing 26 episodes a season in the case of Enterprise. And they just, a lot of times, they can start running together and it becomes like a factory, churn out the next episode. And I think, you know, you, you obviously, like you said, you had the talent of Berman and Braga and LeVar Burton. And for whatever reason, sometimes things just don't pan out. That's that's kind of how I saw this episode. Well, you brought up a good point um, in mentioning the acting strength of Darmok. And you had... Patrick Stewart and Paul Winfield basically anchoring that episode. Two fantastic actors, obviously. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up and ask you guys, was their casting choice just wrong? 
was Eric Avari as Jemin and Mary Carver as Nadette or Bernadette, did you just not believe them because their performance wasn't where it needed to be? Now, I like Eric Avari. I mean, we saw him, well, you probably already know this, as Vedic Yarka in the episode Destiny in Deep Space He's Nine. He's been in so many films as that type of that background character that you see in so many films. I love his work. Uh, but yeah, totally uh, had a great role in DS9. Yeah, so I thought that watching their performances, I understand that they were serviceable as actors, but if you don't get the right performances from these two central characters that have to sell you on the fact that these were once, well, at least in Bernadette's case, she was a child that grew up in this post-apocalyptic style setting after the after her parents or her guardians were destroyed by the, the, the fallout of the poison rain. You didn't feel the weight of that experience in her. And I'm not sure if they developed it, to be fair. But there was just something that you needed from Bernadette to be able to anchor her to the past and have her bridge that experience to Archer. Almost in a very kind of wise woman kind of way where she didn't have to say too many things. She just had to emote the pain and the frustration and the agony of what they've gone through so that Archer understands that it's not just about them being human or his will to move them to a different camp because it's their birthright to be humans on earth. It was, this was leaving their settlement on Terra Nova was destroying their identity the way that T'Pol said it. And she needed to emote that to him. And I think in doing so would have, it would have probably answered more of the uh, general audience's disdain of the episode. What do you think about that? I don't know what kind of director LeVar Burton is. I've never actually heard anything one way or the other. I know he's done a lot of directing. Uh, but the things that you said, Norm, they made a lot of sense because... As a director, when you're working with an actor, that's the kind of thing that you try to work on together. This bringing out the context, the subtext of the scene, and trying to emote, you know, what these people have been through all this time. And there's a lot of different ways that you could approach that. Um, and I mean, you can approach it as, you know, a general fear. Or you can, I mean, just on the very surface of it, you can approach it as fear, you can approach it as remorse. Um, and something like this, I think even for an experienced director, is very hard to do because uh, you have to take kind of a risk in that the style that you're choosing, the direction that you're choosing to go is going to serve the story best. And like I said earlier with the happy accidents, um, I think sometimes with this kind of thing where it's really so far out there, you just make a choice of how to play it and how to direct the actors to play it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I think, I think it was more the writing and the story as opposed to the actors and even you know, LeVar directing it. I'm not sure what level of input and feedback LeVar had on this script. I think it could have often been a, a situation where he was offered a script. And a lot of Trek uh, 
actors want to get into directing and you know they will direct an episode you know Robert Duncan McNeil did a lot of Enterprise episodes he's he was obviously Tom Paris in Voyager Bellana Torres um, also uh, Roseanne Doxson did a lot of Enterprise episodes as well and I don't know if they had necessarily the type of editorial or creative feedback on the scripts they just wanted to get that experience behind the camera I think a lot of it had to do with really how the story was set up and less so about the characters. I think with this said, with that said, if you're comparing it to an episode like Darmok, there is for this episode to work, it really needed much more of a, of a narrative foundation than Darmok had. I think Darmok was in a lot of ways, a a two man play between um, Paul Winfield and Patrick Stewart in a very, uh, theater type environment and it worked so well but it was still almost you know it was carried by the strength of those two actors whereas here there are much more there are more elements at play there are, and obviously it's I think a more grandiose type story which required for it to work more of a narrative foundation to be laid and I don't think it uh, succeeded in that and I think in a lot of ways it's because Enterprise was still locked into a very episodic format the first season and even the second season it was still very much self-contained from episode to episode and if you wanted to do a Terra Nova type storyline then stretch it out over three or four episodes even to see that this is the type of world that we're building and this is the type of interaction that we're going to see that's it's going to be more fully fleshed out and because it's so constrained by 45 minutes and because the premise is so much is bolder and more ambitious. It it didn't have the time, let alone maybe the writing itself from the get-go, but it certainly didn't have the time to develop what it needed to develop. What you said about the director is a very good point because in TV especially, the director does not actually have much input. Uh, they're In a lot of ways, they're there to get things done um, because the executive producer is the big boss. I mean, the executive producer is always the big boss in TV and movies, but especially in TV, the executive producer makes all the calls regarding storyline and anything that affects storyline. And the director is there more or less to see that it gets done and to see that the actors, for instance, are able to find the performance in the best way possible. And if you're not given the greatest script to work with, it gets really hard because you can't make changes on on the day like you would if you were doing a feature. Well, let me ask you this. When it comes to something like this episode and you have, again, you have these two experienced helms of the Trek community. I mean, it would be different, I guess, and it would be a little bit harder to digest that this episode went the way it did if you were dealing with somebody who was a little less experienced. But even Brandon Braga himself, and I saw this on the Blu-ray, and I'm going to quote this from his interview there, he said that the episode was not a bad concept, but not a good episode. But he wrote it. (laughs) You know, so he had to write it. He had to set the production to it. He had to slay the actors for it. He had to go through all of the rigmarole that goes into producing an episode to greenlight that and to sell it to the network. So if he's not behind it, 
And I'm not sure what Rick Berman's opinion of it was, but if he also wasn't behind it, how is anyone else going to be behind it? Well, it doesn't it? mean that they weren't behind you know, it at the time. I think you just tend to find that creative types, I can really attest to this, are much harder on themselves after the fact. I've, d- I've, I've done short films where I've been very passionate about it in the production time, in making it. And even afterwards, I'll see the product and I'll still be passionate about it. But then, you know, a year or two years later, when I can go back and watch it again with fresh eyes, it's much easier to understand where you went wrong with it. And in some cases, I've even gone back and watched some of my older films and I thought, man, what on earth was I thinking when I did that? And uh, I think I've noticed that with Brandon in the interviews that... uh, He's, he's very hard on himself for decisions that they made in any number of areas on Enterprise. Some of them good, some of them not bad. And I think he tends to uh, find a lot of the decisions to be a lot worse than an average viewer would be, simply because it was his baby. No, I agree with that. He's supremely hard on yeah. himself. Yeah, I... I, I... I haven't seen the Blu-rays, but I've heard the same thing too. You know, I would say, it, I think he he. I was reading an article about it. They alluded to right coming right off of seven seasons of Voyager, Enterprise was already green lit. I think there was a sense, even between Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, that the first seasons of Enterprise really took it out of them. You know, the coming up that the full twenty-six episode allotment coming through all of that it really exhausted them and they they argued that that was what you saw in season two that it was you know not as strong as season one and it really led them to shake things up in season three and i think there's a lot of merit to that i think launching a show with this type of premise you know those middle episodes those early middle episodes four five and six seven you know you're really churning out ideas that sound good on paper but when it's executed may not be as strong as you think for a whole host of reasons. And I think in a lot of ways, I want to say enterprise is the, the last of this type of uh, TV series, uh, maybe outside of something like law and order where it's, it's still very episodic. Almost all the TV shows that we see right now, maybe short of like a sitcom you're seeing it, it you know, the serialization is so much tighter. The arcs are so mm-hmm. much tighter and with Enterprise being, you know, a show that was made relatively recently, you know, still following a very episodic format until later on where you had much more cohesion. I think that took a lot of, out of, you know, the showrunners that have been running uh, previously before this a seven season series to come up with more ideas and come up with ideas that are fresh that have not been covered through, you know, the four previous TV series. And I think... You know, this is one of those uh, symptoms of that. Well, do you think it's fair to say that um, because you're you're pretty much coming off the heels of the DS9 slash Voyager crossover, then you had the rest of Voyager, and then right off the heels of that, you had Enterprise, and you had a certain set style and set look, and just completely dialed in delivery of what Star Trek is. You had the perfection in the uniforms. You had the quintessential, impeccable, techno-babbly dialogue. 
you had all of that that was so incredibly formulaic for many good reasons that the fans were like, this is my Star Trek. And then when you finally get to an episode like this, where for all intents and purposes, isn't really doing anything egregiously wrong, but it doesn't have the perfect uniform. It doesn't have the perfect ship set. It doesn't have the techno babble delivery. It's not explaining things away with, you know, these huge, grand, technologically advanced engineering, you know, descriptive, you know, doix ex machina type, you know, uh, explain away the problem type scenarios. You just have a guy trying to make contact with some people that he believes that are human and things go awry and it's very simple. The wrap-up is very cut and dry. Does all of that influence from DS9 and Voyager and from the movies that are going on at the same time, because I think he had Nemesis right around the same time, is all of that playing against a mediocre episode that fans have basically just said, you know what, this is no longer Star Trek. Honestly, my the the last complaint I have with the episode is that it's not a Star Trek episode. Um, I think because the concept still feels enough like a Star Trek episode, it just wasn't executed well enough. But I think you've hit on a very good point about the formula. And I think it's a lot of the reason why fans have rejected J.J. in a lot of ways. And why uh, Nemesis was rejected because they they deviated from that formula and um at least in some ways and i don't think this episode really did that very much i think honestly as as we've said the 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 issues from this episode just stem from the fact that there wasn't enough enough depth in the writing there is not enough there for an actor to latch on to um you know when when you're going through your scripts and you're trying to figure things out and you're trying to figure out your character's motivations. Uh, a good actor will make up stuff where there is nothing, but you can only make up so much. And I think that there's just not enough there in this episode for these characters to really resonate with people. You know, one of the things that I also thought about when I was watching this episode and it's it's pretty prevalent throughout Enterprise, and it's one of the things I wish they actually improved on more as as the episodes went on or established better at the very beginning and turned it into more of a precedent, is using Hoshi. You, you touched on this, Will, earlier. Using Hoshi in first contact situations to create a better diplomatic dialogue from the get-go. Because in creating a more alienated version of the English language. It would have given her purpose. It would have allowed her to experience more. It would have been a great bridge for her to be able to help these people. And in almost every other episode of Enterprise, if not in subsequent episodes, you always see the English language being used just pretty ubiquitously with alien cultures. Take the Andorian incident, for uh, for example. The very first thing that you see are Andorians speaking English. It would have been, I don't know, it's just that's something that's always kind of been a stickler of mine, especially with the way that they're doing TV nowadays, because they're so ingrained in establishing culture through language that this would have been one of those great opportunities to, again, um, just evolve Hoshi a little bit more 
and to set this tone that when they're out there, things are going to be alien. Even humans, in some cases, like in Terra Nova, are going to be alien. And I just feel like it would have made a better first impression to have that type of frustration for the crew earlier on because that's what's dangerous about going out there for the very first time. Nothing is going to be clean. But in this instance and the instances that I've mentioned, it's very Earth-centric even without being Earth-centric. You know what I mean? Because the English language is at the forefront of all of the writing. Yeah, I think I think that's a very... That's an argument that has run throughout all of Star Trek, that Star Trek in this future is still pretty uniformly American. And, you know, English is used as the lingua franca. It's, it's. I mean, it's an American production. We have the limitations of, of, of American TV. But yeah, you know, American cultures, American biases, English uh, as a preeminent language is, is throughout Star Trek from the, from the earliest iterations throughout the 24th century. The ships are named USS, right after you know U.S. Navy ships. You know that that and they're named after um, you know countless Revolutionary War battles or U.S. Civil War battles. You know that lineage is there. Uh, you know using Hoshi would have been critical because you could have used it as a parallel to uh, cultural development or uh, anthropological or sociological experiment. That this is a society that yes, they are biologically human. But over time, over the course of a near century, that they have evolved a completely separate civilization. And I think that is, that right there is a very intriguing concept. And Enterprise could have really, like you mentioned, Norm, could have really taken this idea of developing this proficiency um, with other cultures, other languages, other races, and showed those first steps and showed how you bridge those 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 gaps and this could have been an excellent episode to show that you know this is where starfleet's preeminent exploratory mission comes to the forefront that oftentimes exploring new life and new civilizations can be exploring new life new civilization that arose from humanity in the past and it was was an alternate take on it and i think it's very interesting that because of the constraints of the episode being only 45 minutes, you couldn't have this type of discussion, right? At the end, they decide to be relocated. Uh, and that's pretty much it. It's a very clean ending and you move on from there. And it's trapped by its episodic nature that you don't get to answer the question that they're kind of beginning to address. Like what happens to a, a society, a group of people that are untethered from the more is what we accept to be, you know, you know, educated society, what happens, right? And we don't really get to see that. We, but instead, we kind of see them filling in with what they think that regression would be. And I think that's where the problem is. It's it's a questionable attempt at filling that in within a very compacted and constrained time period. So you don't really buy the fact that this world has been created. You don't buy the fact that this is something that you could take seriously. It is very much something that was not taken to its fullest potential. You know, um, one of the things that I wanted to end with, uh, it was something that that I wrote down, and I, and I want to get this out there because I think this is something that, for me personally, would help resolve the way I feel about 
this episode, and I do like it. I mean, it's not my favorite episode, and I don't think it's in the top 50, <laughs> you know, whatever. But it's not it's not terrible. And for our fans and our listeners out there, I hope we've given you enough material to digest just to keep this into consideration when you're watching it because, again, we like furthering the conversation and hope we've been able to do that for you. But if you can indulge me for one second here, one of the things that I thought would have been really interesting to see would be Nadette and being more like Mary McDonald's character from Dances with Wolves, Stands with a Fist. Because her character was taken from her parents during an Indian attack when she was a child. She had that cursory level of the English language experience from being around eight or nine years old to remember what it was like to speak the English language, but now she has become part of this other culture 30 years later. And when she finally has a chance to speak with Kevin Costner's Dunbar, she's trying to explain the situation with such frustration that she literally stops and she kind of just growls because she can't connect the two cultures the way she wants to. She can see it in her mind, but she can't explain it and she can't execute it the way she wants. And I thought that if they tuned Nadette in that way, it would have been really powerful because this is what happened. She lost her ability to be human and she became Novin and they're trying to reconcile those two aspects of her being in this episode. And that could have been a really nice writing fulcrum for for just understanding what they were trying to do. So I'm going to leave Will and Tommy with that and I'd like to see if what they think about that for possibly final thoughts. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting idea. I've actually never seen Dances with Wolves, although I probably should. <gasps> Out <laughs> to the other side of the room. Uh, so when you said Mary McDonald, I'm like, oh, uh, Laura Roslin from Battlestar Galactica. Right. <laughs> um, but I think that's a very interesting concept. I think it's something that has a, a, a modern-day parallel in our day, in our time, in terms of expats or people uh, or citizens from from one country living for an extended period of time in another country that over time their accents change over time their vocabulary changes their syntax changes and the change happens suddenly obviously the time period the time frame in Terra Nova is near a century and obviously it's with the developmental uh, time frame or developmental stage that it's much more uh, juvenile and much more you know it's much more it's earlier on so I think there's, there are differences to be sure, but there could have been such an interesting exploration of how these changes happen suddenly, not suddenly, uh, gradually over time and how that over time, those gradual changes build up to huge disconnects in languages. So you don't get to see that frustration between communication in the episode at the end when the debt is, when Archer shows her you know, the clips of when she was a child, she, she she's picking up English rapidly. She's, she's getting it back. And, you know, it, I don't want to say it becomes too easy, but it needs to be wrapped up. The episode needs to be wrapped up, right? It's almost like, all right, let's, let's bring it all home, right? Bring it all together. And it doesn't allow you the space to really discuss all these issues that are raised. I mean, that's the problem of an episode like this, right? They're going to have to resolve it somehow. And 
to go back to an earlier point that you brought up, Norm, about you know how English is the preeminent language that was used, it's been really interesting to see you know, the Terra Nova colony. What if English wasn't the language of the of the colonists that were there, right? What if it was? Ooh, interesting point. Yeah. Why? I mean, Earth has a whole multitude of languages, right? Why couldn't it be Spanish or Russian or Arabic or Mandarin? I understand the constraints of an American TV show for an American audience predominantly. I understand that, but it it begs the question of it, it, they could have used Hoshi. They could have said, you know, this colony, the, the people that survived, the children that survived, English wasn't their primary language. They speak Arabic or they speak a, a rudimentary form of Mandarin. And you could see the, the, the Hoshi coming in and saying, you know, I'm going to need to use my extensive knowledge of earth languages and try to deconstruct that. And it have been such an interesting, uh, at least an acknowledgement that yes, at least in the Star Trek universe, we acknowledge the fact that yes, there are at least other languages at some point. I know that early iterations of Star Trek were, you know, made in different time periods and different cultural mores. Obviously there wasn't as of a ready acceptance of perhaps other languages, other cultures, but ostensibly, in the future, there should at least still be other languages around, right? Aside from English, right? So I think it's been really interesting for a 21st century Star Trek show like Enterprise to at least acknowledge that in the future, Starfleet, yeah, English might be the language that we use in Starfleet, but other languages still exist, right? Spanish still exists, um, Swahili, all those still exist. And who's to say that the Terra Nova colony had to be, of course, all spoke English and the English had to be deconstructed in a way that it was just enough to be foreign but not too foreign right? it, like i said like you said before norm it was a concept that they really didn't commit fully to and it, it's, it's a shame really so i i'm not gonna i'm gonna let them go when it actually when it comes to this episode as a whole and when it comes to the language especially uh, i'll give them a pass because from a production standpoint I mean, you, you sort of touched on this, Will, but it, it does complicate things tremendously. And it does, it can increase, story-wise, the amount of time you have to spend in your story on any one particular subject. And when it comes to the episode as a whole, uh, the language maybe could have been um, an interesting part of their culture. It could have helped set them apart more. But I think that it only would have been a superficial thing. They needed something more... Uh, there needed just to be more development in general of their way of life and their culture that 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 they've developed. And... No, that's a good point. That's a good point. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's... I, I just don't think it's that bad of an episode, honestly. I mean, it's got its issues, of course. I don't know why it's on the top five worst of all time. Um, it, it 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 just needed more, honestly. I think it needed more time in the oven. It needed more, probably, if they had had other people come look at the scripts and offer... And maybe they did. I don't know. But, because as we said, the concepts are there. It just, honestly, in my opinion, it really needed more development. So one last question, do you think that, because hindsight's twenty twenty, do you think that this episode uh, was damaging in any way to the momentum of the show as it happened? Honestly, I thought, uh, I think it was the one that came before this, maybe it was directly after, 
uh, Brave New World about the rock people. I would have found that one much more mm-hmm. damaging. Like if <laughs> if if I. But it had Crewman Cutler in it. I love Crewman Cutler, that? but like that episode especially, it's like, <laughs> oh, that just, I don't know. It just did not work for me. But um, yeah. I I think it's just one of those episodes. It's like, eh, it's not damaging. It's not particularly helpful. It's just, eh. Are we, are we doing last thoughts, Norm? Yes, we are. Yeah, I think uh, it's, I want to say... I can't pin it all on this episode, but I would definitely, I could definitely see how Brave New World, this episode, I think, you know, uh, later on they do two days and two nights. Those types of episodes in the first season for a new viewer that wants to see Enterprise go in a particular direction, if they're seeing the, you know, these types of episodes, I could see them saying, oh, like, this is definitely not what I signed up for. This is not, this is not something that I had expected to see from this show. But it certainly wasn't, you know, one thing that really led to the enthusiasm for it being potentially sapped out. There were a lot of reasons behind that. You know, as for this episode, you know, it's Tommy brings a really good point, right? There's also the production side of it, too, right? You know, the stories, the storylines that we suggest here might be great if it was in a novel, if it was in a form that didn't have to be translated on screen where there are on-screen production realities and there's a schedule and there's a budget and there's a timeline. I get all of those things. And really marrying the two together, the production demands and the demands of the story and crafting such a great episode makes me appreciate when an episode does really come together because oftentimes those can be competing demands. So, you know... This episode, it's almost the epitome of ambivalence for me. I'm very ambivalent about this episode because I admire what they're trying to do. It's a very intriguing storyline about rediscovering, you know, this, the lost colony, lost society. It's very intriguing. But at the same time, I'm almost inclined to say if they can't do a story like this right, then don't do it at all. Especially when you're trying to extrapolate uh, a regressed form of humanity because there's so much historical context, historical baggage about what the concept of a of a no quote unquote exotic savage or an Aboriginal civilization is and the the legacy of colonization. I think because of all that, all of that, all that context, if you're not going to be able to do it justice, then just don't do that one 45 minute episode just to fill out the the production schedule for a season. Do something else. If you really want to go do that, make sure you have the time and the resources to really do it justice. So, you know, I, I'm really, I go both ways with this. I get what they're trying to do, but at the same time, if we're not going to do it right, then maybe, you know, don't attempt it. You know, something you just said there struck me. Fill out the production schedule. That's what this episode feels like. It feels like, you know, it was just one of those episodes where they were, you know, when they were plotting out the season, they had 25 and they were thinking, all right, we need this 26th one. What do we got here? Uh, regressed humanity, you know, uh, some shale, some oversight, some underside. All right, we're good. That, that's, the, uh, mm-hmm. that's the feeling I get from this episode. Well, for all of our listeners out there, just to wrap this up, what you can trust implicitly is what Will and Tommy and I are telling you, because we love this show so much, is absolutely not shale. And that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> It's been a lot of fun talking about the mystery of Terra Nova, the mystery, quote unquote, of Terra Nova here in the conference room. But this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. 
So here's a quick look at some of the things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And celebrate his life and celebrate his work and his talent and his integrity. And, and if you get a tear in the eye, that's okay. That's, that's, he would approve. Spock would approve. And, um, you know, he'd say, you humans, why do you feel you need to do this? But, but he would approve. Earl Grey. Like, I'm expecting Ricardo Martavon to, like, walk around the corner and be like, Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Usually you want to be able to capture it or isolate one, but you, you can't do that either because it just keeps, you know, so really does seem like a conundrum of, okay, how do we take this down? You know, this minefield, they are the tribbles of war. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out now! <laughs> the ready room. Riker's all pissed because he can't prop his leg up with no gravity. <laughs> he tries, though. He tries. He's trying. I can, I can picture it. He's Look got the momentum just, makes him somersault. Which really just makes yeah, him look spready. Going in circles. He's spinning. <laughs> Commentary, Trek stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. Well, actually, it started out life as a comic book pitch. I originally came up with it to pitch to Wildstorm back when they uh, had the comics license. The idea was it would be a one-year series that would run throughout the 12 calendar months of 2001, which was the 35th anniversary of Star Trek. The 602 Club. Sometimes that just works better because you can create and craft a, a story that's very compelling because you're not having to worry about what's happened to other places. Okay, we have to make sure this is going to connect to this, and my guess is somehow Agent Carter is going to have something to do with uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. later on, and maybe something that happens in Age Voltron. Warp 5. In the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and it makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trek.fm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join our team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. And I always like to say a special thank you to our associate producer here for Warp 5, Floyd Dorsey. Thanks, Floyd, for all your support on the network and through patreon.com. And you can find Floyd on the Babel Conference, Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listeners page. Now, here's something I love talking about. And 
I don't think I can ever get enough of it because I would like to have more. But thank you for another five-star review that came in on iTunes from Dorian Sword. And the title for this review, I believe, I think I'm pronouncing this right. It's Pound Broth. Because that's what, that's, that's what the review says. It says it's the number sign, but I believe it's Pound. is Pound Broth. But this, may, this might make more sense when I read the review. So Pound Broth from Dorian Sword. I really enjoy your discussions on Enterprise. I have learned how valuable broth will be in the 24th century. I have only heard eight of your shows, and I have a lot to go on, but, as, but have you discussed how Archer's uniform was consistently filthy in comparison with Kirk, Janeway, and Picard, who always were immaculate? So that's a question, Dorian Sword, for our content coordinator, Will. And perhaps we could bring that one up in the show later. Broth on. as in B R O T H, like soup broth. I believe so. Yeah. Well, I am a big fan of broth. I'm a big fan of pho, Vietnamese noodle soup. So I, I, oh, I mean, yeah. I'm sure Chef was whipping up all of that all the time in the mess hall. So um, we should definitely do a broth-centered episode of War Five, where broth essentially saves the day. Uh, That's probably what was all over Archer's uniform. That's why it's so dirty because he just loved his his broth so much. He's just slurping up those noodles. Yeah, who do you think would? Well, Flocks loved uh, he loved egg drop soup, as he liked to say, you know. And uh, I'm pretty sure to Paul probably wouldn't like pho because it might be too spicy for her. Yeah, and she can't use chopsticks apparently. Well, unless she puts her mind That's to it, true. then she can snap a breadstick in half with <laughs> a chopstick if she really wanted to. Um, but yeah, I mean. Is it really dirty? Is it really that dirty? I've never noticed that. See, I learned something new. I'm going to look at the uniform now and be like, is it really dirty? I think it's wow. really only well, in season, season three, three it where it gets that way and then everybody's uniform is dirty because like the ship is in shambles for half the season. Yeah, they're pretty much not worrying about yeah. laundry as they're venting plasma. You know, just, just you know, uh, on the on the scales of one to ten, not so much. And then there's that time he got shot too and you blew a hole in his uniform in the Western episode, got shot in the shoulder. Oh, yeah. And stealing warp coils from alien. No, well, we can't go there. We've already been there. <laughs> so onwards and upwards. So, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on Trek FM slash contact. You can also contact us through Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook, facebook.com slash Trek FM, and as I mentioned earlier, the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, B A B E L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website and click Trek FM and hit the discussion on the menu bar. Now, Will and Tommy, thanks so much for joining me here tonight. It was a lot of fun talking about Terra Nova with you because we always have a lot of fun here in the conference room. But if you could, if you could do me a favor, please tell everyone out there who listens to our show where they can find you on the internet. So you can find me uh, on Twitter at, at Will underscore Win. It's spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. Uh, I'm also always in the Babel Conference, which is, you know, as Norm mentioned, the Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listener group. So I'm always there. Drop me a line and just follow up, uh, follow on some great conversations there. I'm also the content coordinator for the network, uh, as Norm mentioned. So if you have any ideas on, you know, ideas and topics you want to touch on in the future, uh, just drop me a line there. And you can find me uh, via Star Trek Horizon, which is the Enterprise fan film that I have been writing and directing. Uh, for the past couple of years and the main place to follow up on that or to get in touch with me is via the horizon facebook page or official website and that's at facebook.com slash st horizon or on our website star trek horizon.com 
Well, thanks a lot, guys, for being here and uh, safe journeys on your track back to the Overside. So before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring Warp 5 and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an 8-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can help make it happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and to get your seat on the mission. Now, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference, that special Facebook listeners page that we love talking about. You can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm also a proud supporter of Alec Peters and the Axonar Project, and you can find me on the dedicated Axonar fan group page on Facebook. And lastly, I am a proud supporter of Trek FM through Patreon, and I'm an associate producer here on the network for four shows, Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axonar, the official Axonar podcast. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here in the conference room for another episode of Warp 5. Warp 5.